Today's programme is brought to you by the number 74%. That's 74%. Now, why is this such a special number? Well, it's the answer to one of the oldest questions in mathematics. The question is this. Given a box of infinite size, how efficiently can you pack it with spherical objects? In my case, when I started thinking about this problem, my dad sent me a bunch of ball bearings that were apparently used in railroad car bearings. It's pretty easy to make them into different arrangements and say, well, of course, you can't do any better than this. But as mathematicians, we're not really satisfied with an intuitive notion that it doesn't seem like you can do any better, because what we really are interested in is knowing as fact that you can't do any better than that. The problem has become known as the orange packing problem, because often it's posed in terms of the best way to pack oranges into a box. But the problem has its origins in terms of spheres of a quite different kind, cannonballs. You see, Sir Walter Raleigh stacked his cannonballs in pyramids, and he wanted to know about a slightly different problem. How many balls were in a pyramid of a certain size? He wrote to the eminent Oxford mathematician Thomas Harriot. Concerning piling, there are two questions. One, the number of bullets to be piled, to know how many must be placed in every rank with how many ranks in the ground plan. The second, a pile being made to know the number of bullets therein contained. In around 1606, Harriet wrote about the problem to Johannes Kepler, the great German astronomer and mathematician. And it was Kepler who adapted the problem into its classic form. What is the best way to pack balls so as to minimise gaps? As part of his analysis of the problem, he studied the little chunks or loculi of a pomegranate. If one opens up a rather large-sized pomegranate, one will see most of its loculi squeezed into the same shape. The loculi to begin with, when they are small, are round, so long as there is enough space for them inside the rind. But later, as the rind hardens, or the loculi continue to grow, they become packed and squeezed together. The pomegranate loculi form a so-called face-centred cubic arrangement, and Kepler compared it with other possible arrangements of spheres. In the end, he concluded that it was the pomegranate's face-centred cubic arrangement that was the most efficient way of packing spheres. Ian Stewart of Warwick University explains how to build a face-centred cubic arrangement. If you take a whole lot of coins of the same denomination and try and fit them together on top of a desk, you quickly discover that a honeycomb pattern with everyone surrounded by six others is the obvious way to pack them together and it's the one that seems to leave the smallest gaps. If you try the same thing with oranges or cannonballs or tennis balls, what you get naturally as the closest packed arrangement is, is rather like a whole pile of tennis balls in a hexagonal lattice and on the next layer you, you fit balls into the little triangles in the dimples between the other balls and so on. And Kepler knew enough geometry to calculate how closely packed that arrangement and a few competing arrangements were, and it seems to him that this is the closest pack. But exactly how efficient is Kepler's stacking arrangement? Australian maths expert and DJ Adam Spencer. The efficiency of the Kepler stacking is about 74%, i.e. it uses 74% of all the available space is actually full of stuff. If instead you stack your cannonballs or your oranges with a flat row of, say, 10 by 10, then another row of 10 by 10 on top, and 10 by 10, 
and 10 by 10, you're down to as little as 52% efficiency. So Kepler claimed that the best efficiency possible is 74%. The problem is that there are a trillion, million, billion, zillion different ways to arrange balls, and one of them might be more efficient. There are many regular or standard packings, like the face-centred, like the cubic arrangement, like the hexagonal, which is close to matching the efficiency of the face-centred cubic lattice. But strictly within the confines of this mathematical problem, there's an infinite number of different ways you could stack them. Totally random, just drop all the cannonballs into a jar and shake them round a bit. There's a long tradition of people putting vegetable peas, all the same size, into, into pots and squashing them and then carefully pulling them apart and trying to see what the arrangement was and so forth. And the general upshot of the experiments is random arrangements come close, but this lattice packing of Kepler's is definitely better. But there's also a worry if you start doing the mathematics that by thinking about stacking things on a table, let's say, you're rigging the odds in favour of the lattice packing. Because if I start stacking oranges on a, on a table, I've got a flat plane to put them up against says they have to live on a flat plane. And also, we're actually talking about efficiently packing an infinite space, not just one metre by one metre by one metre. And when you take an infinite space and the infinite possible arrangements, there is, by definition, an infinite number of ways that we have to consider this problem. Infinity is a big number, so this was going to be a tough problem. Is Kepler's arrangement of the balls the most efficient, or is there a better one? This problem became so famous it made a list that the German mathematician called Hilbert created in 1900 of the 23 greatest unsolved problems in mathematics. They were a sort of a top of the pops, best songs of all time, super hits as far as mathematicians were concerned, and Kepler's stacking problem, along with Fermat's last theorem and a few others, were on this list of problems to solve. It's one of those things where it's blindingly obvious to anyone who messes around with it that he must be right, and you haven't got a clue how to prove that he's right. Because mathematicians couldn't prove that Kepler was right, some of them focused on the simpler two-dimensional version of the problem. What is the best way to pack circles in a plane or coins on a table? If only regular periodic patterns are allowed, then the answer was known. It's a hexagonal pattern, each circle surrounded by six others. But what if you allow more random arrangements? Later on, and it's not until I think the 1940s, you get complete rigorous proofs that any packing of identical circles in the plane, if you're going to fill space most efficiently, pack it as closely as possible, it is the hexagonal lattice, it's the honeycomb pattern. And the proof there consists of boiling the whole thing down to about 50 possible ways of arranging circles around a given circle and then showing that in each case if it's not the hexagonal pattern you can move them so that they're closer together. In the meantime, mathematicians carried on working on the proper three-dimensional packing problem. After testing millions of possible arrangements, Kepler's packing still seemed to be the best, and the doubt was fading. But for a mathematician, there's a world of difference between being almost certain, or certain in every circumstance you've ever looked, and knowing something to be absolutely true. In fact, one of the very deep problems in mathematical logic and philosophy is called Gödel's incompleteness theorem, which goes as far as to say there are some things that can be neither proven to be true nor untrue, and there are some things that must actually be true but can never be proven to be so. So after hundreds of years of mathematicians poring over Kepler's stacking problem and getting nowhere to an absolute proof, some people were starting to fear, oh no, maybe this one falls into that category of could be true, but we may never prove it.
But then there was a breakthrough. In the early 1990s, Professor Thomas Hales, formerly at the University of Michigan, now at the University of Pittsburgh, became obsessed with the Kepler orange packing problem. I tried stopping my work on this problem <laughs> several times, and every time I was compelled to go back to it again. But it wasn't until 1994 that I had the key insight that eventually led to a solution. I was feeling a great sense of frustration because the problem seemed so complex and so complicated. I didn't see how it could ever be solved. But when that key insight came, I suddenly wanted to work on the problem day and night. Do you think Kepler would be shocked by the amount of effort that's gone into trying to solve his little problem? I'm sure he would be. <laughs> it would turn out that Kepler's arrangement was the most efficient packing, but proving it would require a huge calculation. So he invited a student, Sam Ferguson, to help him out. He said, well, I have this little problem that you could work on. Uh, I think it will probably take you part of the summer, and then I'll give you something else to work on. And that little problem turned out to be step five in his approach to prove the Kepler conjecture. Now, it turned out that it took me three or four, well, perhaps three years to finish that particular problem. So he rather badly underestimated how difficult the whole program to solve the Kepler conjecture was going to be. Hales's strategy was based on analysing a cluster of just 50 spheres. He had shown that you could ignore the infinity of other spheres and simply concentrate on the awkward 50. But the 50 that were tough were tough. Essentially what Hales and Ferguson did was look at what are called local arrangements of spheres, i.e. look at some spheres that are packed together and look at the sphere and the space immediately around the sphere. This resulted in optimising an equation with 150 variables. That's 50 spheres with three coordinates each. That was a massive problem requiring rigour, brilliance and brute force computing. Along the way, Hales and Ferguson stumbled upon a few red herrings. If you take a central sphere and you arrange five spheres tangentially above that one and then five spheres tangentially below that one and then add two more on the top and bottom nestling in with those five, then you have an arrangement of 13 spheres, 12 tangent to a central sphere. And that arrangement is quite similar to the the candidate arrangement, what we think of as the optimal one. But it turns out that you can't actually take that arrangement and then extend it in a nice way so that the local density stays as good as it is for that arrangement. So you might en end up having some nice arrangement that does very well in a corner of the box, but then when you try to extend it outside of that corner, it sort of starts falling apart. Eventually, Hales's proof involves 250 pages of computer programming and calculations. Within the mathematical community, emails were zinging, champagne corks were being popped, everyone was having a mighty fine time. Within the non-mathematical community, greengrocers were going, yeah, tell me something I didn't already know. The story appeared in the local papers, and soon I started getting phone calls from the farmer's market. One of the calls said, we were able to stack oranges all right, but we're having trouble with the artichokes. We need you down here right away. So, after four centuries, Kepler had been proved right. 74% is indeed the highest efficiency possible when packing spheres. But what had been the point of chasing after an ancient and arcane problem like this? 
Well, it turns out to be relevant to the problem of sending a message on the internet and not getting it confused with the wrong message. The mathematical image is the correct message is surrounded by a little sphere. It's a funny shaped sphere. It's a discrete sphere, but it's surrounded by a little ball of nearby messages that it could be turned into when you make errors. And what you want to do is chop up message space into little regions so that even if you make an error, you still stay inside that region. And this gives you your coding scheme. Well, this is packing these slightly distorted balls in this conceptual space of messages. But there are actually good ways to go from real packings of real balls in real Euclidean space to conceptual packings of balls of messages in a mathematical message space. So some of the really efficient error-correcting and error-detecting codes are found from real sphere packings of the kind that Kepler would have known and loved. So the solution to Kepler's problem has an application after all. But that's not what was driving the maths. Mathematicians are motivated by pure curiosity. I'll leave the final word to Adam Spencer. One of the exciting things about being a mathematician is that in an age when more and more university output is insisted upon as being goal-driven and paying back the research dollars and immediately applicable to industry, is that pure mathematicians will still revel in the glory of pure discovery and pure research. This will no doubt have practical applications, but even the solution of Kepler's problem for its own pure worth and the fact that something has occupied so many great minds over hundreds of years has been solved, in my opinion, stands as a piece of work in its own right. Another Five Numbers was presented by Simon Singh. The producer was Adrian Washbourne. 300 years ago, it was a mosquito-ridden marsh. It was to become one of the world's greatest cities. After four or five years, the Petrograd site had begun to resemble a town. Launching a season marking the tercentenary of St. Petersburg. Wolves roamed the streets after dark. Even in 1715, a woman was devoured in broad daylight. There was little at St. Petersburg to attract the people of Moscow. The city was populated by force. A traveller's companion to St. Petersburg. Next Monday to Friday at 9.45 in the morning and again at half past midnight. We have a choice of listening now on BBC Radio 4 in a moment on FM. Our current book of the week continues.